right. Uh, today, hi, today is February 4th, 2013. This is Amy Begley interviewing Dr. Julia Chase Brand for the RRCA Women's Pioneers of Running Oral History Project. Julia Chase Brand is best known for... 1961 Manchester Road Race, where she directly challenged the AAU ban of women running in men's races. Hello, Julia. Hello. You're best known for the 1961 Manchester Road Race, but you started running well before then. Yes, I. Um, as a child, like lots of us do, I ran through the woods, and if we missed the school bus, we'd run to school, which was a mile and a half, and. Uh, just sort of the free spirit that uh, would catch frogs or run the railroad tracks and so on. But, um, of course, there wasn't any running at all for, for women in the state of Connecticut, certainly. And there were certainly no teams in school, and it was not something you did with other people. And, uh, but I, I had always run. And then, uh, lo and behold, my father pointed out, this man who was running on the golf course and said, you know, that's an Olympian, that's Johnny Kelly. And he went on, he was the United States marathon champion eight times in a row and went to two Olympics. And as kids do, I had hero worship. And I watched Kelly, but of course I never let him know that I ran until eventually our paths crossed in the middle of a training run. And, uh, so it, it was through Kelly that um, I got my chance to run in, in competition, though I did have to list fictitious address in Rhode Island because Connecticut wouldn't allow any competition, even in the New Englands. This was 19, oh, late 1950s, uh, going to 1960. Okay. That's amazing. So there was... Since there was no running allowed in Connecticut, I'm sure there wasn't. There weren't school programs or other um, running teams that you could join in the area. No, um, I mean I was always athletic. I had four brothers. I was the middle child, the, the one girl in the middle of five, and we did everything. We did baseball and hockey and football, and uh, at school I did all the sports. And up until in those days, up until you got to be maybe. 10 or so, nobody cared what you did. But then all of a sudden, just as you approached puberty, all of a sudden the rules came out. No, girls don't do this, girls don't do that. But luckily I was in the country, so I just did what I wanted, and and I continued to run. Um, and then my father told me, he'd been educated in England, and he, he told me that there was this thing called cross-country running. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do that when I get older. Um and, of course, not, not realizing that girls wouldn't be allowed to. And I remember his telling me about the Boston Marathon, and I thought, oh, that's neat. I'd love to do that someday. So it was out there, but it, it was somewhere around 10, 11, 12 that instead of getting a sleeping bag for a present, you would get a book on cooking for young maidens or a book on sewing. And um, all of a sudden, I guess tomboyishness you can call it, but just the athleticism was starting to be frowned on. And even um, I, I had a knee injury from walking to church, believe it or not, uh, during much of high school and finally had surgery. And then uh, Kelly and his family had sort of taken me in and they were 
oldest daughter was my namesake. And Johnny Kelly's running mate, George Terry, said, you know, if you'd like, I'll coach you. And there's a, a race in July 4th. You want to you try it? And I said, sure. And this was now 1960. And so I went in my little kid sneakers to uh, this race, and it was the New England Championship, and I'd never run a race in my life, and the gun went off, and I took off, and I guess I finished about 20 seconds ahead of anybody else, and I broke the New England record and won the New Englands. But I remember the whole thing was kind of surreal. I was coming along the track, and there were couples walking around hand in hand, you know, and I had to say, excuse me, I'm running a race, and this was you know, the championship. So I got home, and I showed my father my first place medal, and he said, oh, maybe you'd like to play tennis. And it was sort of like, whoops, <laughs> what have I done? But I wanted to run. That's what I loved. And three weeks later, I was running in the Olympic trials in Abilene, Texas. And I was wearing my coach's shoes. There were no shoes for women. I was wearing his shoes taped on because they were too big for me, and my brother's T-shirt and shorts. And I remember, again, an almost surreal feeling. Here I am standing among people at the Olympic trials, and it's only my second race ever, and I was so nervous. I ducked under the stands, and I took off my bra because I felt like it was strangling me, and I went up to my coach and I shoved it in his pocket and said, don't look. <laughs> and um, and it's Stella Walsh, uh, who was an Olympian from the late 30s and 40s, uh, was in my heat and I used her to set the pace starting off. And uh, took 10, 10 seconds off my time. And then we had to hitchhike back to the airport because we had no money. Uh, it was an adventure. It was, it was an adventure. Uh, but during that time, I was running with uh, you know, Kelly and the group out on trail runs, and it was—it just seemed—I don't know—I just felt very accepted. And uh, George Terry and I trained uh, trained me, and through that summer, I was doing 440s and 880s. And in Thanksgiving, I was at college. Now um, we all were in Manchester, where they had the big. Thanksgiving Day Parade and uh, road race. And so I decided, you know, coach said, why don't you get your workout done, come come run in the race. And I started to go out in the race, and that's where I had my Kathy Switzer moment, where all of a sudden I was surrounded by officials. And I was 18. I, I didn't know there was a rule against me running. And, uh, you know, they sort of pushed me aside. And uh, eventually, I just said to the guys, you go on, I'll, I'll just do a workout here. And afterwards, it was interesting. The guys were so outraged that here I was, New England champion, and I wasn't allowed to run on the roads. So they began petitioning. We began petitioning the AAU. You know, look, if women are going to run the 880, they have to be able to train longer distances. They do this in Europe. They've done it for 30 years in Europe. Um, and we got nowhere. There was this absolute wall. And uh, so as the year rolled on, um, we began to realize that they just were not going to allow women on the roads. They weren't going to allow women to compete with men. And they weren't going to allow anything over 880 yards. Uh, 
And sometimes people have asked me why I did it, and it was because my number came up. I was there, and it had to be challenged. And this was only a few years after Rosa Parks. I I knew I had to challenge the AAU, but it was they were very threatening because they said if you break any of these rules, if you get on the road with men, if you run over 880 yards, we will ban you for life from all sports, we'll strip you of any titles, medals, and so on. And for somebody who loves sports as much as I did, that was, but but I had to do it. It just, it needed to be done, and so we said that I was going to run. And uh, I jumped into another race about six weeks earlier up in Chicopee, Mass., a seven-and-a-half-miler to make sure I was in shape, and I was. But the newspapers caught hold of that. And in modern terminology, it went viral. For some reason or other, uh, maybe the world was just ready for women to go forward this next step, or maybe it was something about my being sort of a gentle, quiet girl, college girl. I'm not sure what it was, but the newspapers uh, were, they treated it as really wild that a girl was doing this. But at the same time, there was kind of this uh, sweetness about it, too. You know, Tomboy Out in the Limb was the title in Life magazine, or uh, Girl Chases After Men, or, you know, there were, uh, I should have pulled out a, uh, actually, if you can hold one second, I will, well, I'll get that in a minute. We can go back to it. Um, so it wasn't just local news. It was national and it was international. And it seemed to feed on itself. And pretty soon I was getting interviews from Europe, from people around the United States, uh, television following me at college. Uh, I got a letter from a nudist in Poland who wanted me to trace the outline of my feet because I ran barefoot quite often. And um, people in South Africa telling me that their aunt had run and that I should go ahead and do it and from Asia and so on. It was it was phenomenal. I had a great big box full of letters from total strangers and it appeared on the, the newsreels when you went to the movies. And the pressure was enormous because women don't run distance. You run distance. What are you? And for a kind of shy, quiet girl, uh, but I, I just, I loved running. I wanted to do it, and I was going to do it. And that was what I said. Manchester turned me down, said I couldn't run, and I said, but I'm going to run anyway. And on the race day, um, I showed up at Manchester, and lo and behold, there was Chris McKenzie, who was the wife of Gordon McKenzie. She was a had been a cross-country runner in Europe before they married, and... There was a second person, or a third, um, Diane Lachaud, who was a high school girl from the local high school. And so here you had Chris McKenzie with a cute little toddler and a dancer from the local high school wearing her bloomers and me for, with my Smith gym suit. And if you'd wanted to present a more wholesome, unthreatening uh, picture, I can't, I can't imagine a better, a better uh, sort of scenario. And so we kind of looked at each other and said, okay, let's start out together. And we all started out together, and then Chris pulled ahead, and um, 
we all finished, and I came down the center street of town, and um, I had never been in a situation like that with sort of thunderous crowds. Um, and I deliberately crossed the finish line. Chris actually finished ahead of me, but she had gone off the track so that she wouldn't be challenging the AAU and wouldn't be banned. But I crossed it, and it was done, and it made the New York Times and all these other papers. And uh, then we waited because we'd thrown down the gauntlet, and it took almost two minutes, two months, excuse me, before the AAU got back to us. And when they did, interestingly enough, they never talked to me directly. They only talked to George, my coach. Um, those were the days. And they offered us a deal. They said, if I promise to never embarrass them this way again and never run in a men's road race, they would not ban me. And in fact, they would, within two months, start experimentally, start cross-country, sanctioned cross-country races. And within two months, we had the cross-country. So, <sighs> So that was the basic Manchester story. In terms of my own running, I tried out in 60. Uh, in 63, my coach went to Africa with the Peace Corps. I had a second knee operation, and I went out to uh, Los Angeles and trained with Igloy, the Los Angeles Track Club, the Hungarian coach Igloy, and was running 80 miles a week, all on the track, all good speed intervals. And I tried out again in 64, and uh, I'd gotten my time down to 217, but the time was well below that. And uh, I ran one more year competitively and then uh, went on to graduate school and to the other parts of my life. Wow. So your last year of competing was in 65. I'm sorry? Uh, so the last year of your uh, competition was 1965. Right. The, last, well, the last year that I did, you know, nationals and things like that, I, 65 was the last time I went to the nationals. Uh, I've continued to run over the years, just gone into races uh, here and there. Um, but the most fun, actually. Oh, actually, during my running years, I did do the Pikes Peak Marathon. Um, and I, by coincidence, happened to be, well, partly by coincidence, I happened to be there when Mary Lepper and Lynn Carmen did the first uh, entry into the marathon in Culver City in 1963, uh, and Mary Lepper did indeed finish. Um, and so at, at, the, um, at that point in 65, I was down to 217, did one more year, but I had also gone to, I went to Africa after that year and was in a fairly bad car accident. Uh, so you, and it looked as if it wasn't going to, there weren't going to be distance races anytime soon enough for me. I did get to run one New England, I won the first New England cross country and the first New England one mile run. If I had waited for the marathon, I would have been 42 years old by the time they finally got the marathon in. So, you pick up and go on, and I did some other things that I really liked. But That's then at amazing. last, yeah, in 2011, I just got it into my head. It was the 50th anniversary of breaking the barrier at Manchester. So 
I found my old Smith gym suit that I had worn and got in shape again and went to, on the 50th anniversary, wearing my Smith gym suit and ran Manchester again. And Ambie Burfoot was with me and my son and my grandson and my niece and a friend from high school. And it was it was just a lovely, joyous kind of uh, a thank you to Johnny Kelly, who had just died, and to all the runners. Who, the runners had always been wonderful. The the runners, I guess they they all figured if somebody could could run the distance, they'd done the training, and they belong there. And the runners were nothing but supportive. Our biggest problem was the AAU. Um, I finally got up my courage to tell Grace Butcher this story yesterday, but the Indoor Nationals in 1962, the head of the women's AAU came up to me. This was right after I had done the Manchester race and put an arm around me and sort of led me up to the balcony of the arena in Louisville, and she looked down and she pointed out Grace Butcher, who had been the national champion in 1959, and she said, you know, Julia, Grace used to be quite pretty before she tried distance. Don't do it. This is the head of the women's AAU track and field. Um, so the opposition was, I guess they were very afraid that something, you know, that something would happen to women or if, we, if women's athletics were pushed too much, they would be shut down completely. I don't know where their heads were, but luckily the rest of us just took off and ran. And that's amazing that even women in the AAU were against women competing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've gone back, you know, to read about the 1928 Olympics, which was the one and only time before 1960 that they had the 880. And what's interesting is, um, I don't know if you've seen the book A Proper Spectacle. It's an English uh, book. And supposedly that race was run and the women all collapsed at the end of the 880. Well, it turns out that didn't happen. They didn't. You know, the first three people were, um, let's see, I think the winning time was 2 minutes and 16.8 seconds. Um, one person tripped and fell at the finish and got right up again. The pictures that were published as showing the agony of the women crossing were actually pictures of the 100-meter sprinters, not of the 880. I mean, it, it was, it's really an amazing story. It was um, this whole ban on women running distance came from that one race when, in fact, everybody finished, and they finished in pretty good times, under 220, and uh, we're fine, thank you. But uh, from that point until 1960, it was never competed again internationally. That is, that is just amazing that they uh, took a lot of rumors to get rid of it for for over 30 years. Yeah. And that it, the AAU was in charge of a lot of things back then. And do you think the race directors wanted women in the races, or do you think they were just afraid of AAU? I'm sorry, say that again. The do, race, think... uh, do you think the race directors were directors? against women? Yeah, the, ra the race directors? Do you think I think they, they were... were as variable as you might predict. Some of them uh, were conservative males, didn't want women in the races. Others had wives uh, or friends whose wives ran um, 
and were supportive of it. Uh, but the real the real problem was that the AAU threatened to ban uh, the the woman, and also uh, I heard the threat extended to if the race directors allowed them in the race then the results could be nullified for the entire race, for the entire field, uh, which was a pretty good threat to them, that they better not let any women in. So some of the men were even, if they ran the race, they were risking being banned as well. So did they... None of them knew it. uh, Oh, they didn't know. But the race directors were told that, you know, we won't sanction your race next year if you let women run. So that was... So the AAU had the power to sanction races or not sanction them. And, I mean, I was simultaneously competing at the state level and swimming and trampolining, but they were so strict that one time I had an opportunity to be on television doing tramp- in a trampoline show, and I wouldn't have earned a penny, uh, would have paid my own way, but because the television show showed commercials, I was forbidden. I would lose my amateur status if I did trampolining on television. Isn't that funny? That is even, wow, even in a different sport. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't be a lifeguard. Uh, They would take away my amateur standing in running if I was a lifeguard because I'd be using my athletic talents to earn money. Wow, so they expected people really to to not rely on running as a full-time job. Had to be an amateur. Yeah, And, of course, by this time, the Russians had a very well-built-up state system for training, which uh, amounted to professional, well, it was professional athletics, but that's okay. We we did what we, we would have done it, whether we did it for free or not. It's nice that people can put all their efforts into it if that's what they really want to do now, and there's the opportunity to be a full-time athlete if that's what what you want to do that wasn't available would you would you have wanted to be a full-time athlete and not have any other um, responsibilities outside of running or we did you always have a need to continue to you know to do other sports I don't know what I would have done had I been born today uh, let's say I'd had the talent I don't know I'm I'm happy with my life I I think you know that after I left running, I went to graduate school and got my doctorate in animal behavior and physiology, and I studied bats and gorillas, and I got to sleep out in jungles and, you know, sit up on mountaintops, misnetting vampires while the crew drank the rum and, uh, you know, went to Australia and uh, got to hold echidnas and catch flying foxes and so on, and take my uh, husband and son along uh, into the field. And it was a, that part was probably just as much me as um, as the running, you know, the, the child of the woods. I think if you'd asked me at age seven, what would you want more than anything, uh, I think I would have said to run like the wind, you know, to run forever over the roads and I'd love to go into the jungles and be an explorer so I got to do both of them which was lucky and then when I hit um, 49 I for 
a series of reasons, uh, decided to do medical school, and I went back uh, and graduated in my 50s with two grandchildren, uh, the oldest person who graduated medical school. And that was partly um, in my 20s. I had been in a program where I could have gotten my MD as well, but I actually was diagnosed a couple of years after I stopped running. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis which it turns out I don't have. Uh, I just had a single episode of losing my legs. Uh, but uh, it had always sat there in the back of my mind. That was the path not taken. And when I went to med school, um, I chose to go into psychiatry again, in part as a tribute to my father who had first encouraged me. My father was a lovely gentle man. He was a Rhodes Scholar, um, but he had bipolar illness, and in the months before, uh, three months before I ran Manchester, he died in the backward of the local state hospital. So in a way, this was homage to him to go and see if I could help other families who had this. So it's been a very rich, neat life. Not many people get to do their their two wishes from their childhood, the things that they want to they want to end up doing in their life. But it's amazing. You've had an amazing life, and you have to be involved in a lot of neat research, including uh, the bats not being blind and the uh, display of the tongues as the. Un, uh, do you want to hear a funny story about gorillas? Yes. Do we I have time for one one funny story? Oh, we do. Um, I was working at the, there was a set of young gorillas at the Philadelphia Zoo, and I'd been studying facial expression, and um, so I finally got my chance to go into the cage with the young gorillas, and I went in, and uh, this was before the zoo had opened for the day, and the three of them were each about 100, 110 pounds, and I was only about 115, and they came up, and my hair was waist length, I had very, very long hair, and the gorillas began climbing on me, and they're big. And so one of them was climbing up my legs, and another one grabbed my braid and began swinging back and forth. And I was on a series of cement steps inside this display area, and I realized they were going to knock me over down the cement steps. So I, I went to the bottom, and I laid down so that I could play with them with my hands and legs but not be toppled over. At which point, the oldest of the male gorillas totally misunderstood why I had laid down on my back in front of him. And he came on um, with sexual advances, tried him out. At that point, I flailed out and I hit the window. I was right next to the window and realized they had opened the zoo. And I was three feet away from kindergarten children with Catholic nuns who were frantically trying to cover their eyes while I was fighting off this gorilla. That's a true story. That was my first time in the cage. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't make oh, these things up. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That is amazing. And with you becoming a doctor well after you started running, um, what did you think about women not being able to run long distances due to the health concerns that they used to say? And can you believe that they that they said those things and and can you see how they could have said that after you've gone through med school? Or uh, it was absolutely silly. Human women have been running 
you know, chasing out in the fields, uh, have been carrying uh, babies and building cabins and doing all these things ever since we evolved, just as the monkeys do. Running is, is very natural. No, it was it was part of the whole men and women are different and women should keep their place and athleticism became one of the um, the markers for what's feminine and what's masculine. It had nothing to do with physiology. But I remember being in high school and writing to Grace Butcher, the only name I knew, and saying, you know, everybody is kind of on my case. You know, is it all right to do this? And she already had two children. And she said, of course, you know, I've done some of my best times during my period and so on. And so I didn't worry about it anymore until 2011, and I suppose this part shouldn't go into any interview, but in 2011, when I was going to go back to Manchester, like many women who've born children and gotten to be almost 70, I was starting to have a prolapsed uterus, so I went and had a hysterectomy before I went back to Manchester, because I was darned if I was going to have a uterine prolapse right in the center of town. <laughs> but, no, uh, it's silly. Um, you know, as we now know... Um, you know, the healthier you are, uh, the, the easier child of birth will be. Uh, Chris McKenzie, who was the one who had been a cross-country runner in Europe, she was a stitch. She used to jump into races that her husband was running. This was 58, 59, 60. And she had a sign on her back that said, if I can carry a baby nine months, I can run a 10K. Uh, and then she had another one that said, it's easier to run this race than childbirth, and so on. Uh, no, it was totally silly. It was a, um, it was for women the equivalent of being black and learning that you had to use a separate bathroom, a separate water fountain. Uh, it kept people in their lane, in their place. My family background was Quaker, and I think maybe that was another part of why I couldn't accept that I shouldn't. A, a prohibition just based on gender. The Quakers were actually very, um, always considered men and women uh, equal and fully liable for their own, making their own moral decisions and so on. Uh, back when women couldn't inherit money, women couldn't vote, women couldn't this and that, the Quakers were out there doing the anti My great-grandfather was the head of the American suffrage uh, union, so I guess I guess I have some feisty genes in there. The fact is, standing up to the AU as a 19-year-old definitely takes a lot of uh, guts and courage, but it, it definitely has come down the line through your family. Yeah, it it was very hard. I'd I'd be lying if I didn't say it was hard. It, I began to feel that there was such an incessant pounding with. Uh, questions and well how come you're doing this and girls don't do this and um there was a gender issue underlying the questions that was so intense and uh i felt so scrutinized that um i really almost it was i almost felt like i had been collapsed into two dimensions i i uh and the night before the race i was george terry and i went to kelly's to relax and Kelly said, you know, was talking with George in his flamboyant way, and he says, oh, 
George, look what you've done. You made a made her into a paper mache monster. And uh, that broke my heart. I sobbed my heart out. And of course, Kelly was so apologetic because he was supportive. Um, but it was it was a much bigger thing than we can imagine it being. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean, you def you you probably knew that you were making history at the time. And did it did women feel like they needed to make themselves up more for the races so that they went against the anti-feminine thoughts of running? Well, you could. I know that when I did it, I was doing it when I challenged the AAU. I was challenging them sort of initially gently, but openly and directly. And I guess I chose my Smith gym suit because it had a, a skirt on it. And I did start paying a little more attention to curling my hair and putting on lipstick before I went out because uh, the unspoken thing was, if she's doing this, is she butch? Is she gay, lesbian? Uh, women don't run. Is she really a woman? And so I, for the first time in my life, uh, met all the standards of society and put on makeup and curled my hair and um but i ran so you know it was a ch different people made the choice differently some people simply masqueraded uh with something that they wouldn't get spotted they were wearing a cap over their hair or whatever uh, but i was i was doing an an open challenge so i did it this other way okay did um, what other women did you see as, as pioneers in that time, and did you make any friendships during during your running that are still that are still going? I did. I've actually I retired this last spring, and in the months since, I've contacted um, Sarah Mae Berman, uh, who won was the first woman in Boston, and after Bobby Gibbs won in was the first in '66, '7, and '8. Sarah Mae Berman was the first woman in. Uh, 69, 70, and 71, and uh, I went up to her house, and uh, Bobby B. Gibbs couldn't come because she was uh, had a cold that day, but I've been talking with Grace Butcher and Chris McKenzie and Doris uh, Brown Heritage and Leah Bennett Ferris, who uh, didn't go till later into the longer distances, and a bunch of other people. I've been tracking down uh, I have not been able to find get hold of Sandra Knopp, who was a good runner in those days, uh, and it's and, and Billy Pat Daniels, who went to the Olympics in 1960, the one person to go in the 880, who ended up married to Hal Connolly, the gold medal winner, uh, and having seven kids between hers, his, his and theirs, and she's a sketch. She went on and became a pentathlete for the 64 and 68 Olympics. So it's. I'm actually probably going to write up something on, you know, our lives because we were there kind of at the dawn. Um, in a way, you know, the song One Moment in Time, I think that's what it was for us. People who, who liked to run, all of a sudden the door opened a crack when they allowed the 880. And this was our, our one moment in time. And... Um, there were people in uh, Nina Cusick was a 
uh, roller skating competitor. Um, I know other people who were who came from competitive swimming into running, and one of them went on then didn't make it in running either, and went on and ended up with a silver medal in kayaking. So there was an excitement. Uh, all of a sudden, these new venues were opening, and uh, it was quite an experience, quite a trip. And every one of you had a had a different kind of journey into running and after running. It, it definitely would be amazing to have all of you together, and mm-hmm. it would be fun to read to read your write up of the lives of of the women that started the running. Yeah, yeah, and some people stayed with the running. Uh, Grace Butcher into her sixties, uh, Doris Brown. Um, a number of them went into coaching. Um, Chris McKenzie, uh, Pat Daniels, and others went off into other fields. I know Sandra Knott became a nurse. I became a doctor. Um, Abby Hoffman's a doctor. Uh, So in a way, it encapsulates the women's movement in this, this, where did we all suddenly appear from? In 1956, there were no women who ran distance. And suddenly, within four or five years, we all blossomed, and we were always there. There were always women who loved to run, who loved to be in the woods. I've been reading about Pikes Peak recently, and there were women who were going up that um, in the 1800s. And, in fact, um, the one who wrote America the Beautiful, Julia Ward Howe, wrote that in the evening after she had climbed Pikes Peak and found it so beautiful. So there's a long history and the people were there, but the prohibitions, the prohibitions finally cracked a little bit for the 1960 Olympics, and we all rushed in. That's amazing. Well, what do you think of the the journey that women's running has taken, and where it's at today? It's absolutely amazing, women's running today. Um, I think one of the nicest things is. There's the professional level and the extraordinary training and the ability to be supported as a uh, professional, uh, to be able to go internationally, and so people can find out what their maximum is, uh, and they can. So that's one amazing part of it. But the other part of it is, distance running has also kept its purity. That is, people can run a marathon, who will finish in four hours with enormous exhilaration because they have run a marathon in four hours and people can run one in three hours and 30 minutes and they have just bettered their time by a full 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of camaraderie. I know... uh, I don't know. I've been in many sports, and I think the thing in running is just the kind of people who who are out there. There can be rivalries and all that, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, if you've run 26 miles, you've run 26 miles, and you feel pretty wonderful for that. And uh, I have always found it probably the most supportive sport of any that I've competed in. Now, here's a funny footnote. So who did I marry? Uh, here I, I am a girl 
running when that's not allowed. I married a man who did ballet for 25 years with Balanchine. And when running, when ballet was as forbidden for men as running was for women, I think in some sense we got each other. You know, this is just what I love to do. It has oh, nothing to do with my spirit. gender. Wow, that's amazing. He's definitely kindred spirits. I mean, he he was bucking the system, and so were you. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Really neat. He just had his 80th birthday yesterday. Oh, that's amazing. Did you guys have a good party? We had a great party. We had groundhogs and 80th birthday combined. So we <laughs> so we cooked a turkey and had Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh. oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, your life has really been fun. I mean, it's between your accomplishments in running and your two doctorates and, and the research that you've been doing. It's, uh, it's definitely been a great journey. It's been fun to read about everything that you've done, and now I'm glad that we've got it recorded for the future generations so that they can continue to learn about the women that stepped up and, you know, challenged the AU. And you were only 19 when you did that, so. Um, well, thank you for letting me sort of tell my own story. That's that's very nice. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, Julia, thank you for for being involved in the RSA Women's Pioneer Running Oral History Project. And I hope that uh, everybody tunes in and listens to the rest of the women as Julia kicked it off for us now and then. Thank you. <laughs>